remember that Steve Jobs commencement speech at Stanford in 05? Yeah, like the one, what he talked about really still resonates with me when he's like, he followed the things that his gut was telling him to do, even though he didn't know how they were going to connect in the future. And so you have to have faith that things will, the dots will connect in the future because that's the only thing that'll drive you in the right direction. Welcome to Depth and Candor, the podcast that explores how changemakers of color define and live out their purpose through their careers, side hustles, and entrepreneurial contributions. I'm your host, Hiwate Gitana, and I am thrilled to take you with me as I talk to incredible innovators about what it really takes to do impactful work and live a life you love. Welcome to season six of Depth and Candor. So much has happened during my hiatus between January and now. Now it's like mid-April. One of those things has been that I've worked on restructuring each episode so that it's wildly useful for you as a listener. And I genuinely believe that this is going to be the most useful season yet. So amen to that. Another thing I've spent a lot of time thinking about is how my work on this podcast contributes to my larger vision for not just my life, but the society that all of us are contributing towards. And as many of you know, I used to work in policy research, and a big reason I did that was because I believed that I had to do quote-unquote serious work in order to contribute to society in a meaningful way. It was also the misery that came from doing work I didn't love and the desire to create a vibrant life that led to the creation of depth and candor. So while this platform has always been about defining and living out your best life as an individual, I'm also increasingly aware of the need to change the systems that don't always allow people of color to freely pursue their joy. In today's episode, I'm talking to a friend whose sole mission is to do just that. Many of you know Gurmai Zahalai from our last Depth and Candor episode together. He's the founder of Rising Leaders Incorporated, which since we last spoke, wow, Gurmai has moved from New York back to Seattle where he grew up. He expanded Rising Leaders from New York to D.C. and Seattle. And he is now running for county council member in King County. When Germay first told me about his plan to run for office, it was over drinks in Harlem. And I remember asking him, why? Like, why running for office? Why now? Why do you think this is a good idea? And it's because I'm generally skeptical of making politics a career path because I think many people lose sight of the purpose behind being a policymaker, which is really just to be in service of the community that you are representing. But over that conversation and many other conversations since then, I've learned that Gurmai's motives are deeply, deeply rooted in wanting to improve the lives of the people in his community because he himself grew up in less than ideal circumstances in Seattle. Gurmai's hope is that he can promote equity, increase innovation, and increase political access for everyone. I think you'll love this episode if you care at all about getting more young, smart people of color in office. Before we get into it, 
you should know that this episode was a pilot test of a live podcast, which I hope to do later this year. So oof, pray for me. Um, so you will hear questions from me and the audience members that came to my apartment for the live podcast, just so you're not like, what in the world is happening here? Okay, so with that, let's get into it. All right, so we are in my apartment doing a live or a pilot version of the live podcast with the one and only Gurmai Zahlai. I'm here. It's me. <laughs> Back like I never left. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay, so Gurms, for people who have might not have heard our first podcast episode. Give us a little background on who you are and what you do. My name is Gurmai Zahlai, and I live in Seattle right now. I'm running for King County Council. That's to be a council member for the county that Seattle is in, and Seattle is my hometown. But before I moved back to Seattle two years ago, I was a New Yorker, and I think that's when I did my podcast with you. It was 2017? I think end of 2017, yeah. Maybe beginning of 2017 because we hadn't incorporated Rising Leaders You're yet. Exactly right. Yeah, so we talked about Rising Leaders. We talked about the mission to help underserved students, and we talked about the steps of incorporating a nonprofit and going through that process. And since then, I took a huge leap of faith and I quit my job, and I've been working on Rising Leaders full time, but also running for office in Seattle. I moved back two years ago. Um, maybe a few months after the podcast released, yeah, and it's been it's been a journey, but I'm excited to get into that today. Yeah, yeah. so let's talk about that. What triggered the chain of events that led you here? Because when we were last talking, you were working in corporate law, you were trying to figure out how to incorporate rising leaders. We were trying to get mentors. We were trying to expand to different states, and now it's in three different states. There are 80 mentors across the three states and you've moved entire states yourself mm -hmm. and started an entirely new career so what triggered that change why'd you quit your corporate job in new york city and move to seattle yeah the reasons why i quit my job and i moved to seattle are pretty similar to the reasons why i started rising leaders and that's because i want to do public service i want to help people who um, who society and the systems and laws have not favored. And so Rising Leaders was a way of connecting underserved students to mentors and life skills training. And now when I go back to my hometown and I'm running for office, I want to do that on a bigger scale. And I want to think about promoting equity and I want to push innovation and I want to increase political access so that we can just make sure that we seize every opportunity to meet the challenges that are coming up in our society and make sure that every individual marginalized communities um, can achieve their full potential. Hmm. Um, there are many ways to affect people's lives in a positive way, right? Um, why running for office? Why did you choose to do that as opposed to just growing rising leaders or mm -hmm. starting another organization that supports people in any of the fields that you just mentioned? Yeah, I think it's hard because I really admire mentoring and I really admire um, supporting youth. But that's a, almost like a reactionary response, right? Mm -hmm. we, we've, we've 
kids are already going through a ton of things and we're trying to help them once they've already gone through all those things. Mm -hmm. But if we can move upstream and think about the causes that have led them to live in poverty and led them to have criminally underfunded education, like in Washington state, Mm -hmm. the Supreme court found that our schools are criminally underfunded. What does that mean? That means there's a mandate by the Washington state constitution to provide a certain level of funding for the schools and the state was just not meeting that wow. for a long time. And so they got sued and the Supreme Court was like, yeah, y'all have been effing up. Right. I was about to drop the F-bomb, but I stopped myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so there's just there are so many things that we can do to make sure that kids don't have to live in these circumstances in the first place. And I think having a seat at the table in terms of policy and decision-making and making sure our communities have a seat at the table um, is one way that I think we can do that. Have you known that you were going to run for office for a long time? Was this a part of like your career plan? Or was it really just having moved back to Seattle and seeing the state of things and deciding that you needed to do something about it? I definitely wanted to do it for a long time. I know the. I know it's like the wrong answer. Most people are supposed to be like, I never considered running for office and I didn't do it until my people called on me and <laughs> the, the time, the moment. No, I, I wanted to do it since 2010. I did an anti-poverty fellowship program, my first job after college. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the first six months we were put somewhere around the country in a high poverty rural or urban neighborhood mm-hmm. doing direct services work with clients experiencing poverty. And the second six months, we all go back to Washington, D.C. and do policy-level work around those issues. Okay. And so my first six months were in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. Bed-Stuy? Naomi, you remember? (laughs) And I was doing community health work, uh, community organizing work, talking to people, making sure that I understand what the problems are, doing research. And then the second six months, I went to D.C. and lobbied on behalf of those communities to Congress to make certain changes that would help those communities. And while I was doing that, I realized, man, it would be great if we had more people on the other side of the table from Mm. our communities. And so I don't want to constantly be the one advocating. I want to be the one who's in the decision-making table saying, hey, I'm from these communities that I care a lot about. I represent them. I grew up like this. I have lived experience. We have something to say, too, in terms of what what policy should be shaped. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I first started to think about it. I was like, I think if we have more people who represent our communities in office, we can do a lot of good. And so I've been I've probably been thinking about it in the abstract for close to 10 years now. Mm -hmm. This makes me think about your mom, because I bet she's incredibly proud Mm -hmm. to watch your progression because Mm -hmm. in the first episode you talked about your upbringing Mm -hmm. right so maybe give a little bit of background for people that might not have heard that episode where'd you grow up and kind of what was your upbringing like absolutely so i I just did my campaign launch speech uh in seattle last week Mm -hmm. great turnout 250 people it was awesome um but i talked a lot about our background and how as a kid we used to move a lot. My family used to move all over the place. It started when my fam, my mother and father moved across the border from Ethiopia to Sudan as refugees. And my brother and I were born in Sudan um, uh, as refugees as well. Mm-hmm. Then we boarded a plane and moved across the Atlantic Ocean to the United States. Once we got to Seattle, we moved 
at least 10 times within Seattle, just mm. from one housing project to another. We grew up with a single mother who had to work as a nursing assistant. Um, and so those low wages didn't allow us to have a lot of stability. We couldn't just like buy a house and live there for 30 years like some people do. Some people go back home and they live in the same house that they grew up in yeah. and they can see their like childhood photos on the walls, but we didn't really have that kind of stability. We were moving all of the time. And I didn't really understand the reasons back then why we were moving so much until I did that fellowship program after college that I was just talking about. I remember talking to a woman on the street in Brooklyn. Um, I used to just go up and introduce myself to people just to get a sense for what they were going through. And she talked about moving a lot. And the only difference between me and her, though, is she understood the reasons why she was moving. She told me she moved because she was evicted, because housing... Pr Prices got too expensive. There was a lot of crime in the neighborhood. She wanted to be closer to a certain school for her kids. So she just had context for why she was moving. And so that conversation led me to just be more aware of the reasons behind why things are the way they are. So if I'm thinking about why my family moved a lot, it's because we couldn't uh, afford to buy a house and have more stability. My Family was always looking for new jobs and new opportunities. Um, neighborhoods weren't safe enough. So we, just a lot of pressures just kept moving us around all of the time. And so I think that once we are aware that public policy is behind a lot of those reasons, we can see that if it can be used to design instability and insecurity, it can also be used to design stability and hope and all these other positive things. So that's a, my, my background, as you asked about, is a big reason why I want to go into this field. That's amazing. What are the policies you're hoping to maybe not enact because you're not in office yet, mm -hmm. but um, that you're hoping to affect or hoping to change once you do get into office? Absolutely. I, for me, I'd start with political access is where I start from because before we can even start thinking about the substantive changes we want to make, we have to actually address the machinery of politics. How do we bring people in? How do we enact laws? Who has a seat at the table? And so that's why I begin by not accepting any corporate PAC money or any money from corporations because we have to get money out and get people in. Oof. We do. Yeah. It's just right now we have a situation where politicians and policymakers are at the whim of whoever their largest donors are. And we have laws that allow corporations and corporate PACs to donate unlimited amounts of money. They're just uncapped, yeah. um, which is, which is wild. And so I'm trying to get as many people in. If, if I'm, if I'm elected, I would uh, create targeted fellowship programs to bring underrepresented populations in to participate in government for a year long or two year long programs. I would want to enact internships, paid internships at the high school level for underrepresented populations so that kids can have exposure to government very early on and their say can be incorporated into that process. And the data shows us from doing rising leaders that if a kid gets a paid internship very early on and at the middle school or high school level, that dramatically increases their chances of getting into college and having lucrative careers after. So you kill two birds with one stone. I think that we should do everything we can to remove restrictions on the voting process. Mm -hmm. So 
if we can do voting on an app, I understand there are security issues with that. But if we can get past that, I think it would be a great way of spreading democracy as far as possible. If people can just pull out their phones and vote on an app, you know, we do a lot of important things on apps. We have banking on an app. We totally. have so it's not there's nothing fundamentally different about the the voting process that we couldn't do that with. And I also want to start a task force that their whole purpose for the whole term annually is to reach certain milestones for number of voter registration and voter turnout that they get. And so if we do that, I think by the end of a one term, we can end up being the county with the highest voter turnout, voter registration in the country for a county of our size. That's incredible. So I, I just want to begin with that machinery of, of politics. Um, and then I can dive into the others too, but I don't want to talk for too long about that. Dive into it and we can cut it if we need to. Okay. Yeah. So other things that I want to do um, in, after political access is promoting equity. Okay, we, what does we, that mean? It means, with, it means beginning with the understanding that racism has designed our city in mm-hmm. Seattle. And that's probably like a lot of cities as well. People think of racism as this interpersonal proactive prejudice on the basis of race that's not what we're talking about maybe that doesn't exist as frequently in seattle as like alabama or somewhere in the south but if we're talking about systemic institutional racism meaning systems and institutions that have that confer power or oppression based on race or have historically and that legacy is still there seattle the, the whole structure of the city is designed that way how would i as a seattle citizen yep. feel that Absolutely. One easy way that's basically invisible unless you're aware of it is our lack of public transit. If you come to New York, you will see subway systems all over the place. Mm-hmm. In Seattle, we just recently in the past few years got our first light rail situation. We're a very like car-driven highway city. And that's because back in the mid-1900s, people were able to lobby the government to invest in freeways and highways so that people who lived in the suburbs could get to downtown and back. And that came at the expense of the inner city, which has no, like very little public transportation in terms of compared to a city like New York. And so that just shows you the design of the city favors one group of people over another group of people. But unless you're aware of that, you can't really see it because it just looks like This is how things are supposed to be. This is normal. Mm -hmm. Another example, I grew up in South Seattle. There are very specific areas in Seattle where people of color live. Mm -hmm. There's historically the Central District, which has been gentrified now. That's in the actual city. In the actual city. And then there's South Seattle, where, where I grew up. And again, that's getting gentrified too. But the reason why people of color live in very specific parts of the city is because there were, uh, there was redlining which didn't allow people to get um, mortgages to, to buy homes and loans uh, and uh, that said people of color had to live in, in this in neighborhood. Yeah, exactly, in mm-hmm. certain districts. And then there were also racial covenants in the property deeds for houses, which said if, if you buy a home, you're agreeing by contract to not sell a home to specifically would say things like Ethiopians or what? or Chinese Americans or Jewish people like it would it would it would say it in the document how long ago is this like 60s and 70s like very <laughs> very recently wow um and so you think about what does that do to 
the ability of people of color and religious minorities to build wealth. Like if I bought a home in 2010, which is not that long ago, your house in Seattle has probably doubled in value mm. because of the housing boom that's mm -hmm. happened there. Imagine if you were able to buy a house in the early 1900s or the mid 1900s, what kind of wealth would you be able to generate just from a single property purchase? Right. And then you think about who's been prevented from owning homes. So you just think about the way that racism um, has just designed the whole city structurally and from a wealth perspective. You, you trap people in a cycle of poverty, unable to buy homes, unable to live certain places. Mm -hmm. um, and then if we don't have good public transportation, when I think about my single mother who still works low-wage jobs, her biggest expense is her car. Mm -hmm. From an insurance standpoint, from a gas standpoint, from a, a maintenance standpoint, it's a thing that keeps people trapped in paying fees over and over again. But what would it look like if she had easy access to transportation? Mm -hmm. Would she still have that major expense? Could she just get to work? Would she be trapped when there's a snowstorm and unable to drive and she couldn't get to work? So there's just little things that seem normal, like owning a car and yeah. having to drive on the highways. But if you really dive into the reasons why they exist, you'll see it's a policy decision behind it. Yeah. And you ask yourself, who was who had a seat at that table to make that decision? Yeah. It sure wasn't her. Yeah. It wasn't people who looked like her. It wasn't people of her socioeconomic level. Um, so we just need more seats at the table and we need to fight for policies that are more inclusive and more conscious of the communities who are working class and historically oppressed. What's striking me as so fascinating as you're talking is how well versed you are on these topics specifically about seattle um and really just about like all of these policies and how they translate into everyday life how did you teach yourself these things i feel like we've always talked about these things we've explored them just as friends you know but you your level of knowledge and your expertise in this has significantly increased since I don't know, five, 10 years ago. So how did you teach yourself how to better understand your city and how to become more civically engaged? Last week, I had my Bay Area fundraiser in San Francisco and a good friend um, came up to me and said, I would really love to run for office, but I don't feel like I know enough to run for office. Yeah. And I that made me so sad because that's how I felt too, mm -hmm. like before I started this process you can learn the issues as you're running for office. I think if you, if your heart is in the right place and you know your values and you know the reasons why you wanna run and the communities that you wanna help, that like data part of it, yeah. you're gonna learn that. The information you're, The information, it's gonna be there. You're gonna talk to a ton of people who are policy experts. You're gonna talk to a ton of people, ton of people who are community leaders who um, will tell you what they care about. Yeah. And so please don't let the perception of yourself that you're not some wonky research driven person keep you from running for office because we need people who have good hearts. That's who we need to run for office. It's not people who sit down and study policy every day of their lives professionally. Yeah. So that's how I learned it for me. 
um, like I always, you know, I, I, I look at federal policy every now and then just because people do that because that's in the news. And uh, but more importantly, I talk to community members. Okay. I I do. I, I, I hear people. I listen. And that's that's how I've started to pick up all of these notes. Hmm. So let's talk about let's put ourselves in the position of the person that came up to you and said, I want to run, mm-hmm. but I don't feel I know enough. Mm-hmm. What advice like what? are the first three things that you did when you decided I'm going to make this happen? What were the first three steps that you took? Well, in reality, the first thing that I did was drag my feet and (laughs) not really know what the first steps were going to be. You know, I was, you talked to me when I was in Seattle. Yeah. (laughs) When I first moved back, I was out there for a year and a half, just trying to find my way, like seeing how to, to make an impact. I, I brought rising leaders. So I was working with youth a lot and I was trying to go to a bunch of community meetings to understand the issues. But I was like, how do you, what's, how do you know what the first step is? Like, like who do you talk to? How do you know what specific office to run for? How do you know which incumbents are going to step down? How do you know how many votes you need? How do you know how many, how much fundraising you have to do? Yeah. The answer is you don't have to know because there are people who are professionals who are paid to know that. And I had no idea. All I did the biggest step forward that I made was one coffee with one political consultant. Okay. I was doing a leadership development program in Seattle and a woman on the board who I just happened to be talking to and telling her what I want to do. She says, my son is a political consultant. He works for this strategic political consulting firm. You should have a coffee with him. I sit down, have a coffee with him. And he was just a wealth of knowledge. Mm -hmm. He told me every single thing that I had been trying to research for a year and a half in one 30 minute conversation. A year and a half I spent asking myself, how do I know how to run for office? How do I know what position to run for? How do I know how, which issues are gonna make the biggest impact here? 30 minutes, boom, 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 boom. We continue uh, our conversations afterwards. He says that I think you'd be a great candidate for office. We have another uh, another coffee and the rest is history. That's how it started. Wow. Yeah. So, so do they lay out like <clears throat> your plan for you? Do you, what exactly happens next? Yeah. So they lay out the plan for you. They show you that th- this is, uh, this person could be retiring this year. Uh, this is how many votes you would need. This is how much you would have to raise. Um, <clears throat> let's then they talk through your story with you and how you can connect your values to specific policies that you could enact. So it's just a holistic approach to advising you in mm-hmm. this field. And it was incredibly helpful. And I hope that anybody who's even considered running for office and doesn't know where to begin, just sit down with a political consultant. You know, if, I'm sure if you Google political consultant and then your city, someone will come up yeah. and I'm, I'm positive the first coffee, the first conversation is going to be free. Okay. So you wouldn't even have to pay for it. Yeah. You have, once you hire them, of course you have to pay them, okay. but it's in their interest to have as many conversations as possible with people and to find good potential candidates. Wow. Okay. So do they teach you how to fundraise or is that a thing you have to figure out on your own? Cause that's a big part of campaigning, right? Yeah. So in addition to your camp, your campaign consultants, you would also likely have to hire a fundraising consultant Okay. and they teach you everything. They tell you that this is the program you would use to uh, populate all of your contacts into a spreadsheet. 
and then you go through your contacts and note them as this person uh, is, you know, I'm close to this person. I'm not so close to this person um, is somebody I met like five years ago. And then you kind of categorize people and start calling. Like that's the main strategy, wow. like call time. Were there any other resources that helped you as you began this journey or while you've been on this journey? Any other resources that Books, helped me? people, podcasts, anything. Yeah, the, I think one of the main things is that I've always done leadership development programs that kind of teach me my strengths and my weaknesses. And so being aware of that has been very helpful for me. Because so you there, did uh, New Leaders Council. New Leaders Council here in New York, Leadership Tomorrow in Seattle. Um, I'm sure if I think about it for a while, I've probably done one or two others as well. Okay. So those those are out there. Yeah. There's a ton of them and a, some of, a lot of them are free. Okay. Um, so I think you should definitely Google them and try to find yourself in one if you're interested in running for office. So that's almost like a pre-step to actually getting yourself into the position of saying, I'm going to definitely run. Yep. You can kind of assess your ability to actually do that and how successful you might be by joining one of these orgs. Yeah, I wouldn't say there's a direct connection to how successful you're going to be if you do them and I don't think they're necessary at all. Of course they're 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 helpful. a plus helpful, mm -hmm. yeah. Um but I think the most important thing is of course talking to people who are experiencing the ills that you're trying to alleviate. Alleviate. Yeah. That makes total sense. Because you want to be as aware as possible of what people are going through, not only from a knowledge standpoint, but from a commitment standpoint. Mm -hmm. It'll make you remember why you're doing this the more you talk to people. And this process is not easy. It's super hard. Yeah. So tell us about what's been difficult in, in the process of campaigning and running for office. Within the first 10 minutes of running for office, I've learned the beautiful lesson of not reading comments sections on articles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So an article <laughs> dropped and you know, you're generally a likable person and you're like, Oh, people are going to love me. And then you go, <laughs> dove straight from the comments. Like I didn't even read the article. I was like, yep, let's go read the comments. And then people who don't know me, he's a socialist. He's coming for your pockets. Really? Yeah. Okay. I was like, what? Hell did that scare you away from the process at all it didn't scare me away from the process but it definitely like made me sad <laughs> and i'm not gonna lie about that it made me sad so from a mental health perspective you really have to guard your joy and make sure that you're not unnecessarily exposing yourself to the radicals on the internet <sighs> of course you're definitely gonna have to be exposed to people who disagree with you and yep. people who are angry with you that's part of it but unnecessarily in comments sections like you don't need to do that and especially don't do it right before bed because <laughs> you already know i already have like sleep issues so i'm like let me just dive into these comments right before bed and then okay i guess people hate me and then you just rewind that tape over and over again right yeah. before bed yeah so let's talk about that how do you get yourself out of funks when when you have moments like this that I don't know if it made you doubt yourself or doubt how successful you might be, but I know for myself, when I see that something is not turning out the way I thought it would or the mm -hmm. way that I wanted it to, I can 
I can be hard on myself based on the reaction that I'm getting. Mm -hmm. And I can get into a funk for days at a time. Yeah. So how do you manage that? Yeah. For, for getting in the funks, for me, it's talking to my friends. Like, talking to your friends is like therapy. It is. Remember when I told you I'm going to FaceTime you like once a week <laughs> just so you can make me feel better? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's definitely part of it because this this stuff is new and it's stressful and it's different um, and it's there's constantly just there are constantly new things that you have to do that are high stress and you're just exposed like the world is exposed to you and you're exposed to the world and people are going to come at you and you're vulnerable. So I think talking to your friends, making sure that you have a good circle um, locally as well. I have good friends and family in Seattle. Um, eating my mom's food helps a lot. So just whatever whatever you did before that made you happy, keep doing that. Mm -hmm. Basketball is a good one for me. I, when I'm on the basketball court, I don't even think about anything else, no matter what's going on. Um, so I need to make more time for that. I love that. Yeah. What advice do you have for people who never want to run for office, mm -hmm. but really want to be civically engaged yeah. and don't really know what to do to, to be that way? That's a fantastic question. I think the first thing that you can do is think about, start with the people. Start the, with the people that you see and you're like, I wish your life could be better some way, and then go talk to that person and see how their life could be better and what their ideas are for making their lives better. Because whether I was a community organizing person in Brooklyn or I was uh, doing running for office in Seattle, the major guiding principle for me is that nobody can tell you more about a community and the issues it faces than the people who live in it. Mm -hmm. And they need to be part of that solution they need to be leading the solution not just part of it yeah. and so if you talk to them and they give you ideas then go and do what they say <laughs> help advocate, <laughs> help on, their advocate on their behalf um, how do you do that yeah so the first thing you can do you can definitely do direct services work which is one of the best things you can do if if you can go out and uh, mentor kids or you can go out and work at a soup kitchen or a food bank or go to a homeless shelter um, I think there's good work to do there but if you want to address more upstream root causes stuff I think politics is the way to go you can do issue-based advocacy or you can do candidate based advocacy and advocate for a candidate. Um, and I think ways that you can do that are, of course, donating to a campaign, electormycom slash donate. <laughs> <laughs> or you can volunteer for a candidate, electormycom slash volunteer. Um, but also you can uh, go to community events that, I, for in Seattle, for example, there are districts, district meetings, the 37th District Democrats, which are the Democrat, which is the Democratic organization for the 37th District in Washington State in Seattle. And they talk about all the issues that are on the table, where whether it's school funding or criminal justice reform, they talk through the pros and the cons of each issue and they tell you how you can support and that can be financially, that can be calling your elected and telling them which way to vote, that can be joining rallies. There's just so many things that you can do. And also, I think it's important for people to think through how 
they can use their personal skill sets to advance causes. You don't have to contribute to society in the way that somebody else contributes to mm-hmm. society. If you're a you're a wonderful podcast host. Thank you. There are so many things that you can do to advance causes. There's people out there who want to be made aware of uh, issues that are out there and, and people who are going through things. And you can promote that message through your podcast. Yeah. I think every single person, if they really think through it, they have a thing that they're passionate about. They have a thing that they really want to do and they can direct that energy toward good causes. I think that's a great way to do it too. It's incredible. That's a great answer. Why don't we open it up to the audience now? You guys ready? What's up audience? Hey. <laughs> Hello, Gormai. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, so I have a, 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 a hypothetical future question. So okay. let's pretend we're midway through your second term. Okay. What are you looking back on and most proud of accomplishing? Ooh, dang. That is a beautiful question. It's a great question. Yeah. There are so many low-hanging fruits things that we can do in the criminal justice system. And King County... It governs all of the county jails, the county sheriff's office with their police department, the courts. That's that's in our jurisdiction and one of the things that we have most power over. And to give you one example of a very low-hanging fruit thing that we can do to make people in jails lives better, they still put kids in solitary confinement, which is a form of torture by any definition. And so if I can look back and say, we don't do solitary confinement at all here, that would be a win. But that's not even close to enough because I think we don't need to be imprisoning youth the way we do. If we're concerned about morality and public safety and people being able to reintegrate into society and be productive members, youth incarceration is completely backwards for all of those things. And you can make that argument even from a conservative standpoint because conservatives supposedly care about public safety. And if you incarcerate youth and you traumatize them through solitary confinement, that only makes it harder for them to reintegrate into society. They are saddled with mental health issues from being tortured like that. And they're saddled with criminal histories that prevent them from getting jobs and, uh, and getting education and housing. so and housing. Because you have to report all of that stuff. So if I can look back and say we pursued alternative methods that aims to restore children so that they can be productive members of society and live their best life after they um, have made mistakes in their past, then I think that would be such a huge uh, moment of pride for me. How do you plan on engaging the community in the decision-making process? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. We need to elect people like me from the community because there's no separating me from the community. Every law that I would enact has an effect on someone like my mom, right? She's a low-wage worker who doesn't have protections of being in a union, um, who has to still struggle to pay rent and live check to check. So there's no incentive for me to do laws that hurt her, right? That's why we need people from the community. So that's the first thing. I I live in the community. I'm going to go to all of the community events. I'm going to be there all of the time. Um, 
And then it goes also back to the types of uh, political access laws that I was talking about earlier, creating fellowship programs, creating internship programs, doing year-round voter registration that, that is targeted at uh, c communities that historically don't turn out, have, a ha have as high a turnout in, in terms of the voting process. And I think that's, those are some big ways. And then, of course, you know me, social media. Got to get, got to get the youth involved in the process. And I, and I've already seen the level of engagement from my community because of social media, because people are there, and it's a great way of getting the message out. And I hope that we can continue to spread specific issue-based information as well as my candidacy through social media. Awesome. Any more questions? Thanks so much, Gramai. I'm really excited for you. My pleasure, my treasure. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> um, what do you think? I, I got her flustered. Look at her. She's blushing. She's blushing. It's all recorded, my friend. It's okay. What do you anticipate your biggest challenges will be personally and politically in the, over the next few months as you approach your election in August? And also, as you are a first or second year person in office. Thanks. Ooh, that's a great question. A lot of parts to it. So let's divide it up by Gurmai as a candidate and then Gurmai as a potentially elected person, right? So during the during the candidacy process, I think my biggest what, some of my biggest challenges are going to be to get my name out there. I'm, found myself running against uh, an incumbent now, which I was not expecting to be the process. And when you run against an incumbent, that's running against institutions, institutional knowledge, institutional name recognition and branding. And here I am, especially with somebody like my name, it's not really a name that <laughs> sticks in people's <laughs> minds and people can't even pronounce it. So, Jeremy, uh, exactly. They'll, they're going to say whatever they want. That's <laughs> Gurmai Zahalai, by the way, just for the record, I need the record to reflect that. Um, so my ground game and our field operation in terms of knocking on doors and phone banking and text message banking and social media uh, ad, ad generation is going to have to be off the chain. So we're going to have to do that. And we have five months before the primary, right? What, what month are we in? April? May, June, July, August. Four months. Jesus. Uh, four months to <laughs> get out there and, and knock on some doors and get the message out. So that's going to be a big one, getting the name and the message out there. And I think we can do that by recruiting as many volunteers as possible and, you know, day and night knocking on doors. On a personal level, it, there are lots of challenges to running for office as a first-generation immigrant. Um, the level of the things you have to do as a candidate are often inconsistent with these like immigrant cultural norms and values. For example, my mom and my family are super private, just like a lot of immigrant families, and this process is not private at all. You have to talk about your family. You have to talk about your background. You have to report where you live. You have to put your phone number out there. You have to constantly be in front of people. And I think it makes it hard culturally to align those two things. So that's that's one big challenge. Um, and then as being a young person, you know, during my 
adventure into the comment sections of articles, one thing that I saw is that this guy is 31 years old. He graduated from law school just four years ago. Why does he think he can represent uh, 2.2 million people in King County? And so people are going to get that. But I don't think that should stop us because we have something to add. We're in a new era of challenges and we need our generation to step up and and add our voices and create solutions because in many ways we're going to be the ones that inherit a lot of the problems that are created right now, you know, 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line, 30 years down the line. And so we need our voices. We need to participate. And we're also qualified. Like what makes a qualified candidate? Our president is a reality TV star. Like he's running the whole country. So what does qualified mean? Yeah. yeah so um, if you're a capable person and you have a good heart and good values, good intentions, and you're connected to the communities that you want to represent and you have good ideas, I think you should run for office. And I don't think your age should stop you from doing that. Any more questions? No? Germay, this has been so wonderful. <laughs> Thank you, Huate. I had such a wonderful time. Where can people follow you and get engaged with your campaign? Absolutely. So um, on social media, you can find me on Instagram at Germay. On Facebook, you can find me at facebook.com slash elect Germay. Okay. Should I spell my name? That probably I'll helps. Spell it okay, good. <laughs> um, on Twitter, I'm at Germay Zahlai. And if you want to donate, it's electgermai.com slash donate. That's electgermai.com slash donate. Thank you so much for coming to my apartment and for sharing your thoughts, your knowledge, and sharing space with me. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I love what you do, and I can't wait to see where you go with this. Thanks. You're on your way. You're on your way. And there you have it. I will link to Gurmai's information in the show notes so you don't have to worry about spelling anything right. I hope this episode compelled you to take one step in the direction of however you define a full life for yourself and a better society for all of us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review it on iTunes. It will help make episodes like this one more accessible to people who don't know what depth and candor is and who want to create incredible work and live a vibrant life. P.S. Depth and Candor is also on Spotify and Stitcher. So if you have friends who don't mess with iTunes, please share the links in the show notes with them. And if you want more from me, like goal setting worksheets and access to secret episodes, join the email list by going to depthandcandor.com backslash subscribe. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook at depthandcandor. Until next time, live vibrantly.